Travis Yost on the phone right now, our TSN hockey analytics writer. Travis, how's it going? I'm doing good. How are you guys doing? Good. We're currently in the midst of seeing the praises of, of Rasmus Sandin and Timothy Lilligren. Uh, Timothy Lilligren we were talking about specifically in the way that he's kind of propped up Morgan Riley in, in Morgan Riley's last couple days, in which he's games rather, in which he started to look more like the Morgan Riley Leaf fans are, are used to seeing. But you put out a great deep dive about the value that Sandin and Lilligren are providing the Leafs right now as, as in-house developed defensemen. What did you uncover in your dive that, uh, that surprised you or caught your attention yeah it's it's really interesting because i i think you could make an argument and toronto's not the only organization in this spot anymore but i think you could make the argument that maybe 20 years ago one or both of these guys um between sandine and Logren don't get the shot that they're getting right now um the the league is just modernized in a way that puck moving and skating abilities are such heightened values on the blue line and raw physical play while still immensely valuable may be marginally less important than it was 20 years ago. And the reason why I bring it up is these are two players that the organization has developed exceptionally well. They look every bit the quality of a top four defender at the NHL. And we're talking about two guys who haven't even kissed 24 years of age yet. And I I think the other key distinction here too is like, you know, if you're a Toronto, if you're any team in the league for that matter, but especially the teams that really spend to the cap ceiling, Draft and development is so critically important because if you can nail some number of picks and develop these players and push them into integral roles, you can do things like go sign a John Tavares in free agency for a ton of money or extend both Mitch Marner and William Nylander. And, like, I get it. Like, the cap the cap situation hasn't always been perfect in Toronto, but look at what Lilligren and Sandine impact-wise are on the books. It's pretty minimal. And on top of that, Look at the performance you're getting from him. I, I was blown away looking at Lilligren's numbers. At even strength this season, the Maple Leafs are outscoring their opponents 32-14. to 14. That's plus 18 goals with Lilligren on the ice in a matter of, like, I, I think it's less than 600 minutes that he's played. So, yes, he's not getting the absolute toughest level of co- competition. He tends to play against middle six uh, opposition forwards. But Toronto is obliterating teams when he's on the ice. And the same thing is true for Sandine. I mean, I think Sandine is like plus eight in goal differential uh, at even strength over the course of the year. And these are, I mean, there is, there's no bigger luxury than being the coach and you can put out a second or third pairing um, or even a hybrid pairing and, and know that you are generally going to win the shot battle, the scoring chance battle, the goal differentials. It drives wins. And I, I think it's really interesting in contrast to a player like Morgan Riley. Um, you know, Riley's had phenomenal seasons. His resume speaks for himself. But Toronto's been outscored with Morgan Riley on the ice this year, right? Like, so that, that to me is a very interesting dichotomy. And it's not always going to be the perfect and easiest job for the number one defender. And, you know, in the case of Riley, he's going to get some tough minutes. He's going to face the best forwards. But guys like Lilligren and Sandine create real material advantages for the Maple Leafs where even when they don't have their best five-man unit on the ice, they are still driving goals, they're still driving wins. And I, I, I would put that, you know, I, I don't, I'm not saying it's Lincoln on Mount Rushmore, but it's got a face as one of the bigger reasons why Toronto is so well-situated where they are right now. Well, I'm curious if you think that the, the way that those two have played so far this season can – you know, be sustainable in a playoff series where the game gets a little tighter and all of a sudden, you know, you don't have as much room to, to roam in the skating. You know, you, you know, some of that space gets taken away. Have you seen, 
you know, leaps from them throughout this season that you had maybe questions about last year. Because we did see Rasmus Sandin sit out the entire playoff series. We saw Timothy Lilligren come in and out of the lineup last year in the playoffs. What you've seen this year, though, do you believe that they can have that success in a seven-game series when the game changes a little? Yeah, it's a really good question, right? Because trust is extremely volatile, even for elite players. Trust is earned perpetually. And I think it's going to be I, – I, I don't think they're out of the woods entirely, but I really would be surprised if a player like Lilligren wasn't part of a routine top four, top five level usage throughout the entirety of the playoffs, however long or short they may be, in large part because I think he's so much – I think one of the areas of big improvement that I've seen from him, Lilligren specifically, we get to Sandine in a minute, but – He's so much more spatially aware on the ice. Like I, I feel like he plays within structure much better he, this year than he has in years past. Your eyes can tease you a little bit when a player is driving these insanely valuable, you know, goal differentials where everything is just seems to be running right when he's on the ice. But I think that's it's it's a bit of a loop, right? Yes, it, it, there may be some puck luck in his in his in his pairings favor right now. On the other hand, like, some of that luck is earned, right? Like, if you don't take yourself out of position, you're making the easy play, you're transitioning the puck up ice quickly to forwards who can score at will on some nights. Like, that's the, that's the sort of process stuff that it makes it almost impossible for a coach like Sheldon Keith to say, look, even if a player was struggling or even if I have some degree of concerns or he hits a slump, uh, hits a slump like, what is that sixth or seventh defensive option that's going to come in for a player like Lilligren or maybe more accurately Sandine, who did sit uh, quite a bit last year? Like, I, I just don't think that option is there, number one. And number two, I think both players have really earned it. It's not just the crazy goal differentials, too. I mean, if you look at expected goals, which really neutralizes the goaltender effect, the one, two, uh, sorry, one, the top three, um, by expected goals on the Maple Leafs blue line are Mark Giordano, who's you know had, you know maybe a couple swings away from the Hall of Fame uh, at 58 percent, and Rasmus Sandin and Tim, Timothy Lilligren are carrying 56 percent of expected goals at even strength year to date. That is complete territorial domination. Yes, the level of competition is going to go up when it matters, you know, in in the playoff time, and maybe you have slightly more relative concern about the level of play, but I mean, that they're dominating the average opponent right now. They're, they're, I, I, I think Toronto is going to double, if not triple down on both of these guys. I like it. We were on the phone with Travis Yost, our TSN hockey analytics writer. We had Joe Bowen on a little bit earlier this week, Travis, and we were talking about Austin Matthews, and since we last spoke to Joe Bowen, Austin Matthews had that incredible game last night in which he scored two very Austin Matthews-esque goals, but it's no secret that his, his production offensively hasn't quite matched the output output so far this season, at least, uh, of the last couple of years, though he might be in the midst of, of heating up for a big second half. But Joe said, you know what, I actually have liked his Gamed his game more this year, and the more you dig into the numbers, he's he's second among all forwards in block shot at five on five. I think he's first in that stat. Yeah. AB discovered in our first block, uh, he had a big block shot last night. Does does that ring true to you that maybe although the offensive output is down a bit, that he uh, he actually has been a better all around player this year? And is there any specific stats that point to that? Up there in takeaways. Yeah, too. I. It's, uh, yeah, I think I think you hit the nail on the head with this one because I I think scoring now granted for the for the you know top one percent type forwards scoring and scoring stability is perpetual right like if you look at Connor McDavid's career scoring 
it is the most flat and predictable trend line you've ever seen because he's always scoring all the time. The vast majority of players go through peaks and troughs, and they, they always will generally regress toward their averages wherever those averages are. In the case of Matthews, like the individual scoring hasn't been there, but his line and his five-man unit are still dominating play. And to me, that's always the buyback. When I see a game-breaking forward, or any forward for that matter, see a serious decline in scoring, I ask myself, is this a result of less opportunity, less usage, less territorial advantage, poorer quality of teammates? Like, you kind of want to check all those boxes. And in the case of Matthews, like, when he's been in the lineup, Toronto, that five-man unit with Matthews on the ice, has, has by and large obliterated who they're playing. And whether it's Matthews getting the point or another forward getting the point over a 10- or 15-game stretch, I think is way less important relative to is he, is he still a very threatening offensive player and is he still or is he working his way to be you know, the quality two-way player we expect you know, one of the three, four, five best players in the world right now to play? My concern with Matthews is almost non-existent, and I caveat almost because of one thing. I don't like, this is true for any major sport, I don't like when players are overly vague about injuries and injury management, and I get that some of this, maybe most of it is cultural, and teams can put their thumb on the scale. Uh, but when you start talking about a forward like Matthews, who has been extremely predictable on a scoring basis, starts seeing scoring decline, and it's collinear with, in and out of the lineup a little bit, vague comments about some sort of injury he's, he's finessing or nurturing right now. That, you know, maybe, maybe that's a, a January issue and it's not really material when it matters most, but stuff like that always catches my eye. So long story short, no real concern with Matthews, but I am keeping an eye on his health because I thought his comments last week were a tiny bit eyebrow-raising. Yeah, I think they, they absolutely were, but he's you know kind of shot out of a cannon since, since that since he took that little bit of a break. So maybe he just needed a, a couple of days there to to get himself uh, rested up, and hopefully he can get going here in the way that we know he can. Uh, we're chatting with Travis Yost, or TSN hockey analytics writer. You actually wrote a piece recently about the playoff format and how you got you got a beef about the way it is because we're sitting here, what's today, January 20th, I believe, and we already know it's going to be Leafs and Bolts in April in a seven-game series. I mean, what's uh, like? what do you think would be the best and fairest way if they were to change the format? Like, if you were commissioner for the day, do you have a solution to oh, this yes, problem? Oh, yes, I do. I, yes, I, I love do, it. But I, I'm worried. I'm worried you guys are baiting me into getting fired because there is nothing, there is nothing that drives me more nuts about the NHL right now than this playoff format. And what killed me, of course, I wrote this piece last week. And in this year, in this case, it has a tremendous impact on Toronto and Tampa Bay. And who it's going to impact the most is whoever's going to be the team that gets that coveted two seed who gets to play a 110-point opponent in the first round. But I've been writing about this since they introduced the format. This format, this forced divisional format, only works if you have reasonable talent balances across the divisions, which I remind everyone, we used to have talent imbalances within the conference, and yes, the, the, the division winners get the top three seeds, but it was a little bit smoother where you weren't so concerned about how 15 teams looked relative to the other 15 teams at the time. Right now, this format, if you ever have a very strong division, you are correspondingly going to have a very weak division somewhere else. And I I constantly hear about the complaints about, oh, it's scheduling imbalance, so they've got to do it this way. It's total nonsense. 
Toronto and Tampa Bay have been obliterating everyone in the league, and they're going to play each other in round one. And by the way, what's true for Toronto and Tampa Bay this year will be true for other teams in other years. If you remember last year, this, this impacted two series. It also impacted the Minnesota series in the first round where you've got two 110-point teams playing each other. And you look across, there's another series where a team with 10 less points is playing a team with 15 fewer points. It, it, it just doesn't – like. I, I am very sympathetic from a business standpoint that the league is trying to manage costs, trying to manage schedules, trying to manage, manage logistics. So you need some sort of ge- geographic center point for some of these games. But when it comes playoff time, like to me, the whole point of the playoffs is like we are playing to win. There's only one winner, and in this case, 15 losers, and that's all we care about. And if everyone generally agrees, like, yep, we just want we want a very fun playoff format that's exciting and compelling and may the best team win, you're not really doing that if you've got two theoretical top five teams in the league, which at the time of the piece, Toronto was four and Tampa Bay was five. I believe they've inverted. They're going to play each other in round one. I, I mean, it, it just doesn't make any sense. And for the life of me, I don't understand why the league doesn't roll if, if, if they think the logistics and schedule are that punitive and penalizing for certain teams, just make it a 1-8 conference split format where the top seed plays the 8 seed in each respective conference. The winner of the conferences play each other in the Stanley Cup. It is, by and large, a, the, an almost identical format. The only difference is you don't have all this points and, and win-loss inefficiency because you are forcing the two seed to play the three seed in every division. That is the crux of the issue, and until that changes, this format is going to stink. Yeah, the only good thing about it is the first round is always electric, but you want it to get progressively better and better. I think that's where right. like, it seems as though the second and third round, it's like, yeah, and then the Stanley Cup final, it ramps up to get the top two teams. But it's like, the, like if I had to rank them, probably the cup final is usually the best. And that's first round, second round, third round. Like I, It's just kind of, I don't know, it's it's definitely not best TV, I would say. Um, so I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you. And obviously the other, you know, the other thing, the other thing to your point, cause I take the point, I think, it, I think it's fair, right? It does. It does just kind of move the seesaw in a different direction. But I like, I think the beauty of the first round is you got all these games, all these teams, some of the series are terrible. Some of them are phenomenal. Like, like you're just kind of bouncing around. Right. But when it really gets meaningful, final four, final eight teams, when it, it is really the elite teams playing one another, you don't want to be in a situation where it's like actually six of them got knocked out in the first round because uh, they were they were playing a team you know 111 point team was playing a 110 point team in the first round. That's and not only that like what do you what do you say in a locker room if you're you know in this in again in this case Toronto Tampa but it will be other teams like yep great season we finished fourth in the league we're going to play a team that's fifth in the league like I I, I just I don't it do, it doesn't make and maybe I'm too much of a purist with this but it it just doesn't make it, the competitive the competitive fairness piece has been entirely thrown out the window, and I think that's a concern. Well, I feel you, buddy. If you create a bill, I'll second it, and uh, maybe we, Amen. We, can, we can try and do as much as we I can like to it. change it. All right. Uh, appreciate you taking the time, Travis. We'll, uh, we'll chat again soon. Hey, guys. Be easy. Appreciate you all. All right. There he goes. Travis Yost, TSN Hockey Analytics Writer. Yeah, he's really passionate about the playoffs, I'll tell you that. I love it, honestly. Well, the the it, only it, hilarious thing is that we noted last week, and maybe this has changed since it was the case last week, is that in a 1-8 to eight conference scenario. No, it's still the same. Yeah, okay, <laughs> just confirm that. The Leafs yeah. still get the Tampa Bay Lightning. Yeah, and, and it's, it's always going to be that way when you have three really good teams in one.